Well, good morning. We're in our series. If you're new or visiting or if you're online watching for the first time, welcome. Uh, we're in our series, The Unveiled Life, and it's based out of Second Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bibles or phones turned there, we get started. Um, I'd like to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, as we were thinking, we looked at that transformation process that begins and continues through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we said that rather than it kind of being a flash in a pan kind of thing or this big jump that we always hope for, uh, a lot of times it's uh, degree by degree, right? Inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, life is hard. And so God does it by degrees. And as you cooperate with God, God then leads you through levels. And several of you uh, came up last week and said, you know, you always talk about these levels. What do these levels look like? And so I thought I'd just take a few minutes to kind of show you what the levels look like. And uh, the key verse that we're pulling this from is found in 2 Corinthians. Uh, right here, verses 6 and 7, it says, But when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, as you go through life, God gives you this capacity or ability to see things you couldn't see before, to become aware of things that you hadn't become aware of before. And so uh, the veil being removed raises this issue of transparency. And uh, I, I like to call this the trauma of transparency. We all want to be intimate and known until we actually do it, and then it's scary and hard, right? So what is that like, the trauma transparency? Well, the first thing, uh, this turning to the Lord deals with the issue of surrender, right? At its bottom line level, Jesus is an authority issue, right? If you don't deal with the authority issue, you won't have a relationship with him because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back that way. And so you have to acknowledge that peace. If you can't acknowledge that peace, it's really hard to have a relationship with them. And so the first trauma is the actual turning. It sounds so simple. Just give your life to the Lord. Just pray this prayer. Just, right? Until you try to do it. And then it becomes traumatic because you recognize there's a surrender involved. The second one is the removing of the veils. Um, and this has to do with repentance. In other words, you have to agree with God what the issues are. You have to agree with God how he sees it. You have to agree with his mindset. You have to agree with his word and say, you know what? I will turn from the way I see it and I'll turn towards the way you see it. And then the third one is the actual being transformed because that takes submission. And it takes a second thing that we also love. I might as well throw it in there, patience. <laughs> Any of you run into that, right? And, and we go, Ugh. But as you realize the Lord is faithful, uh, we were singing the song, uh, your goodness is running after me, running after, right? And I, said, and I said under my breath, I hope it catches me. Okay. Right? It's kind of this idea of submission to that process, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. It's really easy to start. It's really easy to fade halfway through. Any of you ever get a home project going and halfway through go, what in the world was I thinking, right? It, the Christian life can be like that sometimes. It can be a lot longer than any of us ever anticipated. We use this diagram. Again, if you're new, this is one that uh, has been very helpful in understanding the transformation. 
the Holy Spirit comes into your life and draws a line and says, hey, everything under the line is no longer allowable, but anything above, don't worry about it, we'll get to it. And God backs up the line. And as he backs up the line, he backs it usually over one or two things we still want to hold on to. Darn, right? And, but always remember, when God is taking something away, he wants to add something. He's got something on the other side of the line that's really good, but you can't grab that till you let go of the sin or the attitude or the action that he's been talking to you about. And you can see on there both sides what, if you stay on one side of the line, you get one set of character qualities. If you stay on the other side of the line, you get a set of good character qualities. And we use this, and last week we showed the diagram that the problem is that the transformation isn't this big jump most of the time. A lot of times it is for a brand new believer, right? Woohoo! Right? They just go crazy and wild. But uh, for those of us after you know the Lord, it's usually much more incremental and comes by degrees. So flip to the next slide there. And it looks more like this, right? Are we ever going anywhere? Right? And, and we always want God to go faster than he's going, but God is really wise and he knows. So now reading this verse, Again, when you talk about the veils being removed, how does this actually work? So I thought, well, let me give you a view into my life, all right? Let me show you how the levels have worked in my life, and then you can transform or transport that to your world. Obviously, we're not going to always be the same, but here's how this has worked in my life. So three big, three big things the Lord has worked with me on in my life. First is my thought life, right? Second is my eating habits. You can see I've come far on that one, Okay. Third is my finances and debt, right? These have been running constant themes, uh, well, probably before I knew the Lord, but I became aware of them once I knew the Lord, all right? I have been working on these for 43 years, okay? Yeah, okay. So when we say God, when you get, remember the needle goes and you get to that and you go, yes, did it, awesome. God goes, next level. What next level? What, what am I talking about here? Well, for... For me, what this is thought life, I start, had to start dealing with lust. All right? Yep. Right there. Had to do it. My eating habits had to do with indulgence. I remember Charm Heading telling me, Steve, you cannot eat that way the rest of your life. Why not? You know, guys, remember when you go through the buffet line? Rich and I were sitting at a graduation yesterday and saying, remember when you could go through that buffet line four times and you were still hungry? Now we go through once, go, wow, you know, wow, really tough. And then finance and debt had to do with lack of limits. I just didn't want to get disciplined, okay? I, I liked rocking and rolling, right? Then I got on top of those, and God said, great, next level. What? Next level, okay? And he says, well, you got an anger problem. What? I'm Steve Mitchells. I got the greatest laugh in the church. What are you talking about? I'm not mad. Ah, uh, yeah, you kind of are. I have been working seriously on my inner anger since 1988. That's a while, folks, in case you don't know that. What's the eating habits? God says you're self-centered. You get anxious, you get stressed, you worry about stuff, so you eat. And that's totally true. I stress eat. Okay? And... Uh, he said, I thought you were going to turn and depend on me. I, well, I am. Well, I have a donut. 
right? We're, we're mixed bags like that, right? That's, that's me. And then when it came down to finances and debt, God said, you know what? You're greedy. You're greedy. You're selfish. And you, you've got to break that. And you've got to become a generous person, right? That one's actually one of the easiest ones because um, it's the one I've seen the most change in, in my life. But this is how it looks like for me. Um, I just grabbed three. There's more, but this is what it would look like to drop down through the levels and let the Holy Spirit begin to talk to you about the reality of what's there, not just the surface things of what are there. So now, having said that, let's look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. We said this is the core verse in all these chapters. And we all, think of what we just walked through here, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right? There's the backdrop. Boom. Awesome stuff. All right. We need to pray again. All right? So let's, let's seek the Lord again as we walk into days. So Father, thanks for being able to do this, and uh, thanks for the chance to lay this out for my friends, how it's worked in my life. I pray that you can translate that for them. And Lord, we, we seek you this morning as we, we continue on in the passages and some of the stuff we're talking about this morning, really significant in terms of um, what it means to walk with you and what it means to know you. And we give that to your great hope in your name, amen. All right. All right. All right, so um, last week we did 3.18, and Paul then uses that verse as a launch or a platform um, to go into the text we're going to read today. So then he says this, starting with chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry, Paul's talking about the ministry God gave him, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Right? And you will find this phrase repeated throughout Corinthians. We do not lose heart. It needs to be mentioned again that most scholars believe that when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he was what we would call clinically depressed. He wrote about this affliction in Asia, and nobody knows what that is. Paul never tells us exactly what happened, but whatever it was, it was really bad. He says, we despaired of life. We weren't even sure we were going to make it through. And uh, so he's talking out of this context. And Paul needs to stay above the waterline. When he says, we do not lose heart, who is he? Well, he is writing that to the Corinthian church, right, to encourage them. But who's Paul saying that to? He's saying that to Paul, right? He's talking to himself here. I, we don't lose heart. I can't lose heart. And so he reminds himself of the Holy Spirit's ministry, the ministry that God gave him, and, um, and the call in his life. Having this ministry, and notice what he says, by the mercy of God. It was God's mercy and kindness that Paul had, the ministry had. And Paul's appealing to the Corinthian church that they, he said, look, you, you know me. You've watched my life. You've watched my teaching. Uh, but right now he's being attacked. And what does he tell himself? Don't lose heart. It's so easy to run into what can be considered an unfair attack and lose heart. Right? Anybody been there? Right? Came out of the blue, especially if it comes from somebody close to you. Right? Boy, that, that can be a shocker. 
Uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary makes this, this comment, and I thought it was really a, a great comment. It says, what Paul's reminding himself of is that by God's mercy, the ministry he was called to was greater than the ministry that God gave Moses. Stop and think about that for a second. The ministry that God had given Paul was greater than the ministry God had given Moses. Moses had been called to be the mediator of the law. Paul had been called as the mediator of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. When we're talking about transformation and the needle moving, and like that, what are we talking about? We're talking about the grace of God, right? The absolute marvelous. When we sing God's praises, we're singing praises about his grace. Anybody in here that God has been kind to? Right? Yeah, that's called grace, my friends. And Paul's saying that his light and momentary afflictions, when he writes that in Romans, he's writing about himself. I hope you understand that. His light and momentary afflictions were nothing compared to the inexpressible privilege he had been given to administrate the new covenant. Moses had administrated the old covenant. Paul was given the new covenant. And so this had been inaugurated and consummated in Jesus Christ. And therefore, in spite of everything, Paul knew this Jesus. He had had an intimate run with him. And as a result of that, he keeps telling himself, remember how it started, don't lose heart. Okay? By the way, one of the cool things, uh, just if you're discouraged, go back to him, remind yourself how Jesus found you. Go back to that. It's, it's a, it's, it, it will encourage you. But he's saying, keep, he kept his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's a fantastic word for us today, this morning. Our world is being racked with fear and anxiety. I don't know if you've run into people or had a chance to talk to people. Um, if you read the articles online right now, anxiety is the number one uh, problem that people are dealing with, uh, especially in our country today. Anxiety. It's off the charts, uh, particularly in the 20 to 24 age bracket because they're looking at our world and going, what do I got to live for? This thing's going down the toilet and I, I don't see any hope. Okay? And Paul is looking at that in the same kind of context and saying, keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the one that makes sense of all this stuff. How do we as believers keep from caving into the same ditch of despondency? Right, and admit, we're people, it's easy to do, right? I don't know, but sometimes I just have to quit watching the news. It's just mucky, dark, icky. Yeah. And I, got, I just have to turn it off, right? Well, how we do that is we remind ourselves of whose we are and what we're called to as well. We are Jesus' people. We are Jesus' sons and daughters. He found us, we didn't find him. Amen? Very good thing. And because of that, we have to remind ourselves that I therefore have value. God doesn't adopt junk. If God found you, he saw value, and it doesn't matter how you see yourself, it matters how God sees you. Okay? And that's just really powerful. I was talking with a friend one time, and... Uh, talking about a ministry opportunity, and he had just come, he, he had gotten just gut shot, okay? There was nothing left of my poor buddy. And he's weeping and bawling, and I just don't think I can, and I can't tell you what I actually said to him, but in essence, <laughs> kind of, sort of, what I said to him was, 
I don't really give a blank how you feel about yourself. This is what I think of you. Okay? And I did it for shock value. And, uh, you know, he's like, because I had a better picture of him than he had of himself. Right? And he went out and did it. And he's, he's functioned that way. So it's, it's really kind of, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and what he says our value is, not what we think our value is, because we can get lied to. The, Satan's really good at that. So we need to not lose heart. Peter captures the same idea. Look at 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And it is a mighty hand, and it is not too short, and it has not grown weak, and he can bear his arm and smoke this whole place. All right? So amen, amen, amen. He is the Lord of Lord, And he, God, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a great verse to remember under pressure and tension. I like NIV better. It says in due time okay, instead of proper time. And uh, so it reads like, so the mighty hand of God, so in due time he may exalt you. And I always remind people that due time is not your time. Any of you run into the difference between your timing and God's timing? Right? It's a, it's a bit of a struggle. Okay? God's timing of something is critically important. God is never late. God is never late. But we usually try to manipulate or force it because we're impatient. And so we get in trouble that way. Seldom, at least I found, is my timing God's timing. Some of you may be there with me. And as a result of that, we have to learn what? Here's that word coming again. It's a beautiful word. You just love it. Patience, right? We have to learn patience. We have to learn dependency. So now Paul's going to lay out his main defense. And the accusation by his enemies at Corinth is this, is that he's been greedy and self-serving in his ministry. They actually told the Corinthian church, Paul's enemies, he has taken advantage of you. Yeah, yeah, he sounds godly and everything, but he set this whole thing out so he can get ahead. All right? And so Paul's really um, getting uh, jacked around here at this point. And he counters with an appeal to their consciences about the things we've talked about. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We have refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth... We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Uh, let's just pull this apart a little bit because there's some there's cool things in here. So if you start with, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. In the NIV, it says secret and shameful ways. In the NASB, it says things hidden because of shame. The King James Version says things hidden because of dishonesty. Right? So you can look at that. The words vary a little bit, but you can tell they're all going after the same thing. Right? And there's this tendency to operate um, this way and hide something stuff it back here that's shameful. And that, this reflects back to something that... Um, this was a complaint of God that God had in the Old Testament. So if you've ever read through the Old Testament, uh, and by the way, there's some fantastic stories in there. But if you read through the Old Testament, you come across what are known as the wilderness wanderings. That's the Red Sea and the, going through the desert of Sinai, right? A ton of stories in there. Um, but there, there was a point of contention 
that started to develop there, and it, you, you trail it all the way through Israel's history. And we're guilty of the same thing. What's the offense? Well, in Isaiah 29, and the reason I know this, I just finished Isaiah, now I'm going into Jeremiah reading through, so I'm rolling with, if you're rolling, reading through with me, keep on going. Uh, it says this, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are, from, are far from me. So how does this work? What is, what is offensive to that? Well, I think we all have the ability to understand this. Did anybody cave to pornography this week and cover it up? It's out there all over. It's one click away, right? Anybody gorge themselves and seek comfort from food instead of prayer? Anybody seek comfort and solace in alcohol instead of the Holy Spirit? Anybody lie this week? Anybody gossip or slander about someone this week? Try to tear somebody down? Anybody cheat on their reporting or taxes and get ahead? Anybody under stress or pressure take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Anybody cheat or skim in their time at work? If you have, then we are what the Bible would call iniquitous. All of this creates what Jesus calls close lips, distant heart. And this, in turn, causes us, we track crooked. Look at what God says about it. He says, again, um, we're reading from Isaiah 29, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, and the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed of him, say who formed it, he has no understanding. Rightly does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That ought to scare you enough to run straight to Jesus right there. Right? David says in Psalm 139, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, where can I go to hide my sin? Well, there's nowhere you can go to hide your sin. And a major point of the Christian life is renouncing the things that are done in the darkness. And so God unveils layers of darkness. Why? To shed light on our lives. Look at the second point Paul's making. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. NIV again says, we do not use deception or we do not distort the word of God. New American Standard Bible says, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. King James Version says, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Get the tone there, what it's saying? saying you can't play with it and make it work for your own purposes. The word of God will stand on its own. You can't twist it. And Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, look, I wasn't crooked. I wasn't clever. I wasn't deceitful. I wasn't being crafty. 
when I was with you and taught you the gospel and the scriptures, I was straight up. The word he would use would be commendable. We were commendable to you. Sadly, there are many today who are cleverly and cunningly twisting and distorting the word of God. We should not be surprised. It was happening in Paul's day also. Paul was obviously pointing out to his critics and saying there's a danger in being clever or cunning. And the same would be true of us today. Play it straight. Uh, Diana has a motto with her fine. Just do it right. Right? Just do it right. Which is very good for our church, by the way. Okay? Just do it right. Paul's comeback to these accusations can be found in verse 2. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's, and here's the word, conscience. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is appealing to something here we don't talk much about today. We don't talk about the conscience of a person. That a, a, a conscience can be damaged, a conscience can be hardened, a conscience can be wrecked. A con, uh, there's all kinds of terms for it in Scripture. But our consciences are our moral faculty. It's a function of our spirit more than it is our mind, of knowing what's right and wrong. And why we get rid of the word of God is because then we can create a different right and wrong that matches my morality. And the old saying was, either your theology dictates your morality, what you can and can't do, or your um, morality is going to dictate your theology. And if my morality doesn't line up with the word, then I just change the word. Right? And God's going, no. No, you need to change your heart. You need to change your mind. You need to change your thinking. Paul is appealing to the what is historically been known down through the ages is as the moral law or the moral code that's written on people's hearts. Romans 2 uh, talks about this. If you look there, it says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's that same thing coming back into play. In other words, what the Bible's saying is no one's going to say, I didn't know. No one's going to be excused out. Why did you do this? Oh, well, you've got to understand my circumstances, Lord. Oh, I do. And let me tell the part that you never told anybody else. Oops. Right? That's why the Bible says come under him now. Notice again the connection between here. Notice hiddenness, conscience, and judgment. Notice how they're tied together. Okay? They, that is what God, and God is speaking mercy to say, this is what you're up against. You better come to me. I provided something to you on the cross that will bail you out. Second Corinthians in chapter 1, Paul said, for our boast is this. This was his defense earlier in the epistles. The testimony of our what? testimony of his conscience. What was the testimony? That we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, by the, by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. He's saying that to the Corinthian church. Paul's appealing to their conscience. He says, remember how we behaved among you. Remember what we taught. Remember how we worked. Remember the message. And that's an important reminder for us again today. 
God is not merely interested in us giving a message. He is interested in us being the message. Those two have to line up, or otherwise we become disingenuous, which means static, weird. It doesn't connect. This was Paul's commendation to the Corinthian church, and uh, what is he saying? Look, you've watched our lives. You saw us. What does your conscience tell you? He's not even appealing to their knowledge. He's appealing to their conscience. Where is this coming from? Well, in 4, we get a handle on this. Look at verses 3 and 4. He takes it a step farther. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay? Again, Paul agrees there's a veiling going on. He agrees with the Christian. Yeah, you're right, there's a veiling going on, but let me tell you where it's coming from. It's not coming from me. And he identifies a completely different source, the God of this world. There is a reason that Satan is known as the enemy of our souls. Satan is a master at cloaking and veiling the truth from people. Jesus' own description of Satan in John chapter 8 is that he is a murderer and a liar. Matter of fact, he is the father of lies. Lying as we know it comes from him. Now we see another attribute associated to him. Paul here uses the term blinder. He's blinded the eyes of people. So they can't see the light of the gospel of Christ. In this, their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds, what he says, of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So blinded from what? Seeing the glory of Christ. This is the same imagery used in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that Jesus is the exact represent, representation of the Father. When you see the Father, you see Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. They are a mere imprint of each other. Okay? Mere imprint. So if you want to know what God's like, read the four Gospels. And ask yourself, can I trust this guy? Because you're looking at God when you look at Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. And here's a great point. Who do you know who's the only person who can make a blind man see? Yeah, if I remember right, his name was Jesus, right? Any of you watching The Chosen? Such a cool scene in that, right? Jesus is the exact opposite of Satan. Satan blinds, Jesus gives eyesight. Jesus gives us the ability to see. Paul is obviously referencing his own conversion story. Paul himself, right, was what? Ran in Jesus. He was blinded, knocked off the horse, had to be led into town by hand. And certainly Paul remembers when Ananias came and prayed over him, and it says something like scales, uh, we'd call them cataracts, right? Fell off his eyes, and he was able to see. And, and, and Paul was blinded. He could not see till that moment that the person he was persecuting was Jesus. Right? He, he, was, he, he couldn't get that. <clears throat> again, the Expositor's Bible commentary points out that in all three accounts of uh, and Paul's um, testimony in Acts, and of course Luke is the guy who wrote that, right? But in all three accounts, Luke includes this, this references to noonday light that was brighter than the sun. 
In other words, what Paul ran into was that intense. Symbolically, when Ananias prays for Paul, it says something like scales fell off his eyes, like we've already mentioned, right? And Paul says his heart was in anguish over his own people who couldn't see Jesus as the Messiah. Peter gives us a picture of this. Uh, what happens when you come, you're able to see Jesus says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, Notice the phrasing, out of darkness and what? Into his marvelous light. God is light, Satan is always darkness. God gives sight, Satan blinds. See the picture that Paul's drawing there? You say, I can't see it. Steve, even as you're saying this, online, whatever, here, I can't see it. It's not clicking, it doesn't make sense. Then Paul's admonition would be to turn to Jesus and let Jesus remove the veil. You can't remove it yourself, let him do it. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, what? The veil is removed. This is the theme verse of the famous song, Amazing Grace. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but what? Now I see. That's not pride. That's not arrogance. That's testimony. Written by a former slave boat trader. And you could say something really simple this morning. Lord, I need you to remove the veil. My blindness. And you're the only one who can. Have mercy on me. Restore my spiritual sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? It can be that simple, but it's got to come with a surrendered heart. By the way, it's no different for those of us who know the Lord. Right? We can get lost. We can get blinded. We can get sidetracked. We can get cold-hearted. We can get disillusioned. It's called spiritual warfare. And Paul took it very seriously. See, here's the thing. Satan doesn't care if you are lost. He just wants you to stay lost. Satan doesn't care if you're sleeping. He just wants you to stay, stay asleep. Satan doesn't care if you're blind. He just wants you to stay blind. Satan doesn't care when you crash. He just cares that you crash. And he can play the short game on that or he can play the long game on that. Satan is the master at cloaking and misleading truth. He is the father of lies. And again, Paul took all of this very seriously. Paul is appealing to their conscience and reminding them of what they saw in them. And Paul is also reminding the Corinthian church about their need for gratitude. See, one of the first things that goes out a window is gratitude. How do people walk away from the Lord? Disappointment with life. They didn't get something they wanted. Life didn't go the way they wanted it to, and they got disappointed, and they started to become ungrateful. And once they become ungrateful, you start to become blind, and once you become blind, you do really stupid things. That later you go, what was I thinking? The point was you weren't. I wasn't, right? Paul highlights the, the, that God has extended tremendous mercy to them and tremendous mercy to us, and we should be the most grateful people on the planet. By the way, grateful people are generous people. 
Okay? So if that's any indication, we're doing okay, Northview, because you're a generous group. But it can dry up, right? Generosity dries up if you lose your gratefulness. Look at what uh, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul is saying to his detractors, nice argument, wrong target. I'm not proclaiming myself, never was. You got it all wrong. I'm proclaiming Jesus as Lord. He's the one that makes the difference. We're merely servants held responsible for the message. It's God who gives the light. Paul is clearly drawing from the Genesis account when God said what? Let there be light. And Paul ran into that light. And he's saying to the Corinthian church, remember the light. Right? He's also clearly referencing back to chapter 3 with Moses and the Shekinah glory. Remember that with the the glow? Only this time it isn't Moses' face he's talking about, but rather it's Jesus' face. The light that's shown on Jesus' face at his transfiguration is the same Shekinah glory that is on his face permanently now. And this Shekinah glory is the Shekinah glory that John ran into. Remember John in Revelation ran into his buddy Jesus, his best friend, he ran into Shekinah glory, and he dropped like a dead man. We're not talking, we're talking intensity here. Right? It says brighter than the sun. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I.e. Corinthian church, keep your eyes on Jesus. I.e. Norfew, keep your eyes on Jesus. Let the light of Christ shine in your conscience and play clean. Play it simple. Play it right. Don't stay in the shadows. If you've had a shadow week, just admit it, confess it, grab somebody, pray with them, and just say, I did not do very well last week. I grabbed darkness instead of light. And just pray. You know, nine times out of ten, the power of sin is in its hiddenness. And you tell somebody, and the, the strength of it's broken immediately. I was telling this to a guy this week, uh, had been training, and he came to me and actually said, this is what I did this week, and this is what I'm doing, and I want to do it again, I'm going to do all this stuff. And he said, as I'm saying that to you, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard myself say. That's totally true, Steve. If I speak it out, it loses its power. Why do you think Scripture tells us, confess your sins to one another? We think it's a guilt trip, and God wants to beat us up. It's for light. God wants us to be free. That's how, if you speak it out, it gets broken. So in our view, don't stay in the shadows. Walk in the light, even in these tough times. Keep your eyes on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this morning. Some really tough things in our culture. Some really tough things in our lives. But great things, we got the greatest thing. We got you. Lord, can help us shine light into our lives, shine light into our church. We know that we have spiritual cataracts. We know there's things we should see we haven't. We know there's things we procrastinated on. But be a good father. Come back around. Help us. Give us light to see what we should be doing in this culture, what we should be doing in our homes, what we should be doing just with you. And we seek you for that light, Lord. We pray that it'll shine and it'll show up on our face that your Shekinah glory would be a witness to the people in our community, 
and may it all be about you. And we give that to you in your name. Amen.